You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Fifty-two thousand three hundred and ten tons, eight hundred and eighty-two feet and eight inches, capable of carrying three thousand five hundred and forty-seven people. These are just a few of the components of perhaps the greatest feat of engineering in human history at its time. It cost two hundred million dollars to create. New slipways needed to be constructed in order to build this vessel, as no one had ever attempted something of this magnitude. It took over 12,000 men more than two years to finish the project. It combined the most advanced technology of the time with the greatest luxury that money could buy. It employed new and noteworthy safety features. Uh, Philip Franklin, the president, vice president of the White Star Line at the time, which funded and made this behemoth, said this, the boat is unsinkable. Such was the confidence in this ship that on Sunday, April 14th, 1912, when it came time for a lifeboat drill, they decided it was unnecessary. After all, this thing was invincible. And then, at 11.40 p.m. that same evening, the RMS Titanic struck an iceberg, gashing an unfixable hole in the hole. And within a few hours, the entire thing sat on the ocean floor. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18 says this. The Titanic tragedy has captured the public imagination since its occurrence. We're all fascinated by how this happened. There's museums and exhibits. There's actually one that either has been through Phoenix or is in Phoenix right now that you can go to. You can learn all about this. We're fascinated by how the peak of human ingenuity could have gone wrong on its maiden voyage. What happened here? What went wrong? And I think there's a central lesson in the Titanic tragedy that actually is is one that Peter talks about in our passage that we're going through today. The lesson is this, that self-made and prideful power is a sinking ship, and real power is found in weakness and in humility. Feel free to, to open up if you have a physical Bible to 1 Peter. Uh, chapter 5 is where we're going to be. 1 Peter is at the back end of your Bible. It's after the books of Hebrews and James. Uh, also, if you have an app or a phone, sometimes that can be easiest. I get it. No worries. So feel free to, to follow along. Once again, that's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read aloud for us. To the elders among you, I appeal. As a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. This is the word of the Lord. 
um, I, I want to give a, a quick intro to the structure here. You may have noticed it. Peter addresses three different groups in this passage here. Uh, he starts by addressing a group that he refers to as elders in the church. And the word there does refer to biological age, but it also actually implies uh, people who have been in the faith a long time and are, are wise and mature in it. There's a, a second implication under that. Not only are they older, they've lived this Christian life a long time, and they have more wisdom and maturity because of it. So that's the first group he addresses in the first four verses. The second group, he says, are, are those who are younger. He addresses those folks. And again, this refers to biological age a bit, but it also refers to a newness or a freshness in the faith. Those who have been in it only a little while, and those can often overlap, right? If you have fewer years that you've lived, that's fewer years to have grown in your faith. And then finally, the third group he addresses is all of you, right? He brings them all together at the end in verse 6 and gives them a command. And what's fascinating about this for me, and I wanted to point it out as we go through this, because Peter addresses a couple topics that can be difficult for us in 2020. Uh, he uses some words and some phrases that we are often off-put by, things like submit or authority, those who are younger and those who are older, addressing this kind of division between those things. And I want to remind us as we're going through this of the context. He is working towards, in verse five, verses 5 and 6, unification. He is bringing the elders together and those who are younger together to rally them around one central Christian virtue. And so Peter's goal here is not to create this strict division and hierarchy. He's simply addressing the elders where they're at in their Christian faith walk. He's addressing those who are younger where they're at in their Christian faith walk. And then he's bringing them all together and unifying them around the topic of humility. So keep that in mind. If you have these kind of cultural trepidations or mental pauses when you hear things like submit or authority, remember that Peter is working towards bringing this all together. He's working towards bring it, bringing it to unification. So keep that in mind as we go through. We're going to follow Peter's uh, path here. So he, he mentions uh, elders first, then those who are younger, then all of us, right? So we'll address first elders. In verses 1 through 4, Peter refers to himself, uh, starting out in verse 1, as a fellow elder. And this is noteworthy because Peter doesn't have to do this. This is an act of solidarity on Peter's part. He is equating himself to his audience in some way. Remember who Peter is here. He's one who watched Jesus's ministry. He, he was there when he taught. He was there when he performed miracles. He watched his sufferings. Jesus himself calls Peter the rock upon which I will build the church. If anyone has a right to claim power and authority in the church, it's Peter. He has the right to do it. He was told by Jesus that he would be the rock upon which the church was built. But we don't see him do that. No, instead, he lowers himself. He calls himself one who shares in the glory that is to be revealed. When he says one who shares, the Greek there means companion or partner. I am with you in this. We're in this together. That's what Peter's saying here. And so he's actually modeling the traits right off the bat that he's telling us to have as Christians in the same passage. He's not just talking the talk. He's walking the walk. He's setting the tone for what he's going to say, and he's modeling it for us to follow him. And I think we can learn from Peter here. It will always be wise for us as Christians and as humans to put ourselves in the shoes of our audience. Because if the gospel is true, if we are each established and saved only by the work of Jesus and never based on our own efforts, then we are never to preach down to one another. 
In fact, the gospel ensures that there is no pedestal from which any of us can preach down to one another because we are all elevated by Christ as children of God. There is no place that I can stand above you. We are all elevated by the cross. And so we can learn from Peter in this way to never preach down and speak down to one another. So then he keeps rolling and and speaking to the elders. In verse 2, he tells the elders to be shepherds. And that language is an interesting one. It might say in your version, tend your flock or feed the sheep, something along those lines. It echoes language that Jesus actually told Peter back in John chapter 21. Uh, There's a, a famous story here. It was after Jesus rose from the dead. And after breakfast, he's speaking with Peter. And he asks Peter three times, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response three times is, of course, I love you. And Jesus' response back is, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, tend the flock. And there's an important lesson that Peter is simply echoing directly from Jesus in that passage to hear. If we say that we love Jesus, if we say that we are Christians and follow this Christ, that must mean loving the people that he loves. If we say we love the shepherd, we must love the sheep in the same way that Jesus loves his sheep. We must give ourselves up for the flock. There is no distinction between loving Jesus and loving those whom he loves. If we start to make that distinction, we lose sight of Christ. And so he tells them to be shepherds, echoing the same language of Jesus. And this should make us ask, well, what does being a shepherd actually mean? Because we live in 2020 in Phoenix, Arizona. We do not walk around and see shepherds all the time. We, don't, uh, we aren't familiar with what the life of a shepherd looks like. And so to answer that question, I think we have to start with, well, what does it mean to be a sheep? Because uh, we also don't see many sheep around us. So I've actually got a picture in case you guys don't know what a sheep looks like. <laughs> this is a sheep. And uh, it is a goofy picture. Many of you laughed. Despite what this picture might communicate, sheep aren't stupid, but they are wanderers. They do tend to wander. They have a tendency to do it. And they're also very vulnerable. They don't have a lot of defense mechanisms. And so for shepherds, there are two important things that they're responsible for doing with sheep. They're responsible for feeding sheep and leading sheep. So first, feeding sheep. Shepherds actually bring sheep out to pasture. They lead them to food and water. In many ways, they bring them to life. That's part of a shepherd's role. And in order to do that well, they must know where the good pastures are, and where the clean water is. They must be able to have a a directional focus on how to get the sheep there. In the same way, if a Christian leader or elder is to be a shepherd, they need to lead the flock towards the bread of life and the living water. They must be able to draw the flock, to draw other Christians towards life, towards Jesus. And in order to do that, they must also know where the bread of life and the living water is, right? Christian leaders must have a thriving and close relationship with Jesus if they're to lead anyone to him. If they don't have a close relationship with Christ in their own lives, they can't lead anyone there. You have to know where you're going in order to arrive there. So this is the first responsibility of Christian leaders and elders and of shepherds, to lead the sheep to life. The second thing that they're responsible for doing after feeding is leading Not only are they responsible for bringing them to life, but they're also responsible for protecting them from death. Sheep, being very vulnerable, are constantly under threats from predators, wolves and lions. 
And shepherds must be aware of where those things are and be able to protect the flock from them. They must keep them close. They not only lead them to life, but they protect them from death. They don't only bring them to water and food, they protect them from lions and wolves. And in the same way, the Christian leader and elder is responsible for protecting the flock, for being aware of where the threats of darkness are at all times. In our world, this is often characterized by hopelessness, depression, and anxiety, things that can infringe upon us and draw us away from Jesus. But over the course of human history, we've also come up with words like these, things like wrath, things like lust and and envy and greed, right? We, we have these terms that draw us away, these desires that if we allow to persist in our lives can move us away from life. And so it's the shepherd's job, it's the Christian leader and elder's job to ensure that we are protected from those things, to keep us away from the elements of darkness that constantly try to infringe on our relationships with Jesus. So this is what it looks like for a Christian leader or elder to be a shepherd, but Peter doesn't stop by just saying, be shepherds. He continues to give them specific characteristics. He says that they are to lead not by compulsion, but willingly. Those of you who are siblings in the room will probably remember uh, instances like this. Uh, Maybe you had a fight with your sibling at some point, a brother or a sister, and you hit them, or you stole a toy of theirs, or something along those lines, and your parents come up to you and say, you need to go apologize to your sibling, right? You need to go say sorry. And I'm sure every single one of you was a perfect angel in this situation. And you went and apologized with a sincere heart and restored relationship, right? Yeah? No. No, we don't do that often as kids. Our reaction is typically instead a groan. Fine. You kind of mosey on over to your sibling. You try not to make eye contact because that would make it real. And then you say, I'm sorry, and then quickly scutter away, right? That's our typical posture as siblings. And the reason we have that posture is because we're doing it under compulsion. We aren't doing it willingly. We've been forced to do it. And Peter is telling us that that's the exact opposite posture that Christian leaders and elders need to have. They don't lead because they have to. They lead because they are overwhelmed by a love for the people whom Christ loves. They do it because they are willing They do it because they desire it. They do it because they see the beauty in it. They're not groaning on the way to church or to community group or in a service. They're instead overwhelmed by love for the people. The pastor who doesn't have time to meet with you, they're not shepherding. The leader who seems to dread their work every week, they're not shepherding. And if Christians miss these things, Will they destroy their title? They have removed Christ from being their guide. So this is the first thing that Peter says. Uh, you, You don't lead out of compulsion, but you lead willingly. The next thing he mentions is that we don't lead for dishonest gain, but we lead eagerly. The Christian leader must never long for their own uplifting. They ought to lead instead by serving because this is what Christ exemplified. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul, in a famous passage, says that Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead took the form of a servant, lowering himself for the sake of elevating others. This is what Christ exemplifies for us, and this is the example that we must follow. If a Christian leader considers their title whether it's a pastor or a community group leader or a director, whatever language we want to give it, if any Christian leader decides that their title is a thing to be grasped, 
to elevate themselves. They've lost the point of this whole thing. And oftentimes, Christians can be bad at this. It happens all the time in the church. We live in a culture of celebrity pastors, right? Leaders who have developed a brand for themselves, who produce a product each week for their consumers and attempt to maintain an image that will keep applause ringing until kingdom come, or so they hope. This phrase, celebrity pastor, should be an oxymoron. The very nature of it runs contrary to Jesus, who called us instead to take up our cross and follow him, to die to ourselves, who taught us that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, who said that apart from him we can do nothing. There's a, a pastor that I've loved reading. He actually just passed away, I believe it was last year, the year before. Uh, his name is Eugene Peterson. Some of you may be familiar with him in his ministry. He was a, a brilliant theologian and thinker. He loved Jesus deeply. And in the Christian world, he could have essentially had anything that he would have wanted. He could have gone and spoken across the country. He could have really named his price. He could have written books and made millions. But he didn't choose to. Eugene Peterson instead committed himself to nearly three decades serving a local church in Maryland, giving his life for the flock. And while his Wikipedia page might be smaller than some other pastors that you know, the effect he had on a flock of people for decades, it's undeniable. It's powerful. The giving of himself up for others. And he actually had a famous quote that I think captures uh, the, the two options that we have as Christians. I've got the quote up here because it's a long one. He says, we choose. We follow the dragon and his beasts along their parade route, conspicuous with the worship of splendid images, elaborated in mysterious symbols, fond of statistics, taking on whatever role is necessary to make a good show and get the applause of the crowds in order to get access to power and become self-important. Or, or we follow the lamb along a farmyard route, worshiping the invisible, listening to the foolishness of preaching, practicing a holy life that involves heroically difficult acts that no one will ever notice in order to become simply our eternal selves in an eternal city. It is the difference between wanting to use the people around us to become powerful and entering into covenants with the people around us so that the power of salvation extends into every part of the neighborhood, the society, and the world that God loves. Powerful. The way of the dragon versus the way of the lamb. Christian leaders are called to give themselves up for others as Christ gave himself up for us. And yet often we fail. At this, often Christians continue to follow the way of power that is offered by the world. And it's at this point that I, I want to take a brief aside and issue an apology. Because I think this affects many of us or has affected many of us in this room at some point in our lives. I am sorry if you have ever, ever been a part of a church or have experienced Christians that are or were dragons if you have known Christian leaders who have used you or others for their own self-promotion, power, and elevation on behalf of the church, I am sorry. If I have ever, ever made you feel that way, if anyone at the spring has made you feel that way, I am sorry. And I know that this can often make us want to disregard the church 
to say the whole thing is corrupt. It's full of dragons. But I want to ask a question. As we wrestle through that issue, as we wrestle through the pain that has sometimes been inflicted on us by the church, I want to pose this question. Is it the church that does this? Is it the church that follows the way of the dragon? Or is it an inherently human thing? Is it the church that does this? Or is it humans that do this? Because when I look around the world, I see nothing but the way of the dragon. In every area that humans touch, politics and business, education and public service, every public domain is characterized by self-striving, self-sufficiency, and self-made majesty. There is nowhere we can go where people are not covered in dragon scales. And since there are humans in the church, it shouldn't surprise us that this sometimes leaks into Christians. It shouldn't surprise us because that's the human way. What should surprise us is when we see the way of the dragon broken. What should surprise us is when we see Christians who display humility instead of pride, selflessness instead of selfishness, grace instead of disfavor, service instead of grasping, compassion instead of indifference. That's the type of church that Peter is saying we need to be. That's what God does in people through Jesus. The way of the dragon is the way of the world. It's the way of humans. The way of the lamb is otherworldly. There's something so unique, so noteworthy about people who give themselves up for others. We, we don't have a frame for it. We don't have a paradigm for that type of love. So as an encouragement to you, as, as you consider deeply, what's the point in this church thing? Because there's dragons all over the place, and I've been hurt in some way. As an encouragement to you, don't look at the way that the church looks like the world, because that's of humanity. Look at the way that the church is radically unlike the world, because that's of God. So Peter wraps up here his, his uh, kind of discourse towards elders, his directions toward elders in the church through those first four verses. Then in verse five, he addresses uh, the youths of the church, right? Those darn youths. And this is where some of those more challenging ideas come in for us, things like submission, right? He tells those who are younger to submit to or accept the authority of the elders. And we don't like that language. We don't like the word submit in our culture. And I think many times that's justified. Authorities often abuse their authority. And those who submit often become the oppressed in those scenarios, right? So we have trepidation. We just say submission is not a good thing. But I want to explore that notion. Because I actually don't know that submission is that way. I want to explore what it means to submit. So I have a, a definition. This is from the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the largest database of, of the human or English language that we have right now. Uh, and it says this, amongst many other definitions, this was the central one that I think encapsulates submission. Submission is to place oneself under a certain control or authority, to become subject or surrender oneself to another. Right? I'll read it one more time. To place oneself under a certain control or authority, to become subject or surrender oneself to another. I think that makes sense as a definition of submission. And if that's true, then we submit all the time all the time, consider with me your toothbrush. You submit to that little sucker twice a day. I hope, anyway, if maybe you're checking your breath and thinking about it or popping in a mint right now, right? Or by extension, you submit to the dentist who tells you to brush your teeth twice a day, 
right? You submit to the authority of the dentist because you know it's healthy. You know it's good for you. We do this with all sorts of things. We submit to our cars or the companies that make them. We submit that they're put together well and that the brakes will work when we hit them. We submit to our doctors when they give us drugs to take. We submit to scientists when they tell us how the world works. Every single one of you is submitting at this very moment to the chairs you're sitting in. To inanimate objects with four legs you have chosen to give yourself. If the chair falls, you fall with it. You have submitted yourself to the chairs you're sitting in. So submission as an idea is not inherently wrong. In fact, it's necessary for us to do anything in life. We must submit. And so our problem as humans is not with the concept of submission. Our problem is often with the trustworthiness of the authority that we submit to. It's with the reliability of the thing that we're giving authority to. And this is an important distinction to make because when Peter tells those who are younger, the youths, to submit in the church, he doesn't do it in a vacuum. He doesn't do it independent of something else. He's just gone through four verses of how the authorities, the elders, the leaders in the church need to be the type of people who give themselves up for the flock, who pour themselves out. That's the type of authority that we should want to submit to because that's what healthy relationship looks like. Those who are younger in the church are not just simply told, hey, you're younger, they're older, listen to them, and Peter wipes his hands of it. They're told to submit to the type of people that give themselves up out of a love for them. That's what this submission looks like. Just because you're young doesn't necessarily mean you automatically do this thing. We do it because we know that, well, our elders love us. And again, this is how every healthy, relationships, every healthy relationship works. I submit to my wife because I know that she loves me. And she submits to me because she knows that I love her. This is a, a beautiful and mutual thing that Peter is working out here. It's not a divisive thing. And then in verses 5 through 6, he brings it all together. He says to everyone, elders and younger, those who are veterans and those who are rookies in the faith, all of you must clothe yourselves with humility. And scholars here bring up the word clothe uniquely. They, they think that it refers to the, the garments that servants wore at the time. It's akin to what Jesus actually illustrated in John chapter 13 when he washed his disciples' feet. He put on a garment and washed their feet. And this is actually a perfect example of what this looks like for us as Christians. See, because in this passage, we're told that Christ knew where he was going where he had come from, and that God had given everything into his hands. In essence, Christ was fully aware of who he was and the authority that he had. He knew the power that was in his hands, but instead of grasping it, he chose to give himself up and to serve. Rather than standing on a pedestal, he chose to get on his knees. He chose to elevate those around him. He chose to give up his status for the sake of serving others. And this is what we're called to do as Christians. We are called to give up our time, our energy, our money, our very lives for the sake of serving and loving others. This is the posture that we are to have, regardless of the power and authority that we can grasp onto. And this teaches us an important lesson about humility. It's like jello. Uh, I have a, a volunteer that's going to come up and help me. Her name is Lori. Everyone give Lori a hand. Yeah. 
Don't be scared. It's just jello. It's, it's just water and powder things in there. Lori, I'm going to ask you to take a scoop of the jello and hold it in your hand like this. Just scoop it. Yep. Get in there. Scoop it up. Beautiful. Beautiful. So hold it there. Hold it. Everyone see the jello? Yeah, give it a little wiggle. That's fine. Now, Lori, I'm going to ask you to as tightly as you can grasp the jello. As tight as you can. Nope. As tight as you can. Yep. And there it all, all goes. Beautiful. And there's not really any left. Thank you, Lori. Everyone give Lori a hand. I'm glad you thought it was fun. I'm glad you said those words after Jello is unique because the tighter you try to grasp it, the less you have. The more that you try to grasp jello, the less you will find you're able to hold on to. And humility is the exact same way. Humility is not a virtue that you can win by self-effort, that you can win by grasping. In fact, its nature is very opposite. If I stood up here and told you, you guys, I am humble, that would be the very moment that you would know that I am not humble. When I've realized that I've grasped it, I have failed to be humble. Humility doesn't turn you inward to make yourself better by effort. Humility turns you outward, away from yourself and towards others. Rick Warren said it this way. Uh, He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And notice in verse six here, where this type of humility lands us as Christians. Peter says that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is what Peter has been building towards the whole time and what the whole gospel hinges on. It is the crescendo of this passage. In a potent reversal of power, God esteems those who give themselves up for him. Those who deny themselves and give up their power grasping actually find that they are elevated eternally by a God who loves them. They're given more power than they ever could have grasped on their own. When we say to Christ, Lord, I have followed the dragon and have become burned. I need you to redeem me. We find ourselves given eternal value through self-denial. Scripture says that we are made into a royal priesthood and a holy nation when we do this. We become co-heirs with Christ and children of God. We have our sins redeemed by the sacrifice of Christ, and we get to participate in the perpetuating of redemption across the whole of creation. We are given eternal value that could never come from our own grasping. We're given the very thing that we were longing for in the beginning. We're given eternal value. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, if you are willing to be nothing, God will make something of you. The way to the top of the ladder is to begin at the lowest round. Do you see how radical this is? Nowhere else in the world does this exist. There's no framework for this type of submission There's nothing in the world like this. It is radically otherworldly. Everything around us commands us to grasp and hold tightly onto the power and authority that we can lay our hands on. But the way of Christ flips the whole system on its head. 
The world's prominent pattern of power is dethroned by a magnificent king who wore servant's clothes. An apron has become the crown and the way up is made the way down. The dragon is slayed by a lamb so that we might be free to cease our striving for notoriety in the world. Christ established us eternally, forgiving our wrongdoing and naming us a part of a royal family. He did this for you. He did this for you. He did this for you. He did this for all of you. So, as Eugene said, we get to choose now. Will we continue as dragons, grasping at every possible worldly marker for our value and our purpose? Or will we become lambs, turning towards Christ to redeem us, to start peeling off the dragon scales of our fire-breathing selves? Will we be dragons or will we be lambs? Would you guys pray with me? Dear Father.